Please give attention to the word of our God in the book of Jonah at 1.17. I guess I'm assuming that everyone is somewhat familiar with Jonah's flight away from obedience. We find in 17, and Jehovah prepared a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed unto Jehovah his God out of the fish's belly. And he said, I called by reason of mine affliction unto Jehovah. And he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol cried I, and thou heardst my voice. For thou didst cast me into the depth in the heart of the seas, and the flood was round about me. All thy waves and thy billows passed over me. And I said, I am cast out from before thine eyes. Yet I will look again toward thy holy temple. The waters compassed me about, even to the soul. The deep was round about me. The weeds were wrapped about my head. I went down to the bottoms of the mountains. The earth with its bars closed upon me forever. Yet hast thou brought up my life from the pit, O Jehovah my God. When my soul fainted within me, I remembered Jehovah, and my prayer came in unto thee, into thy holy temple. They that regard lying vanities forsake their own mercy, but I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that which I have vowed. Salvation is of Jehovah. We mentioned uh, three or four weeks ago when we were discussing David as an eminent type of our Lord Jesus Christ, perhaps the most eminent type that we find in the Old Testament. And Jonah was mentioned because he too is a type of Christ under the authority of the word of Jesus Christ himself in the New Testament, naturally, when he said, even as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so must the Son of Man be in the ground for three days and three nights. So he underwrote, if you will, the fact that Jonah is a type of Christ. And yet he is a profound mystery, is he not? If you're familiar with his course of disobedience, a lot of people like to uh, revert a little bit to their Sunday school days when they were six or seven years old, perhaps, and remember all about Jonah and the whale and so on. But Jonah is a, is a very enigmatic person, and this is an enigmatic account of this man, his disobedience and so on. He wasn't very nice, to put it very simply and perhaps crassly. You read, you read about his disobedience at the very outset, and then you read at the end where he says, I do well to be angry. And, and you're left hanging, almost like the book of Acts. You're just kind of left hanging. And yet, Christ gives him some credence by citing him as a type or example. And yet, we just wonder about Jonah. He wasn't very nice. The point I'm making is, if you will, that types of Christ employed by the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament are not necessarily nice people. They don't have to be nice people in order to be used as a type. 
And Jonah was such an individual. He simply wasn't very nice. We don't have too much good to say about him other than this prayer that we just read in your hearing. A wonderful prayer. And also his unselfishness in telling those shipmates, throw me over. Throw me into the sea. But Jonah just seems like a mean-spirited individual and not very nice, but nonetheless a type of our Lord Jesus Christ in being in the belly of that fish three days and three nights. Well, we've been going through for some time a study of the life of David, the man after God's own heart, we're told, by God himself. And yet, guess what? David wasn't a very nice person either. That's hard for me to say, being his namesake or he being my namesake, but he wasn't a very nice person. We have it in our minds, and perhaps some of that is from Sunday school lessons as children. Perhaps it's from our own reading. Perhaps we pick and choose what we want to read. That's a fault that many of us can fall into. And we may think of David that in pictures even, that little shepherd boy uh, with a harp, and, and he's composing Psalm 23 or some such uh, thing in this portrait, so-called. Or we may see a picture or remember a picture of David, the little boy, which he wasn't, but the little boy confronting the giant Goliath. We may even bring to our minds the beautiful picture. I suppose somebody's probably painted it, and I'm just as happy I haven't seen it, of David dancing before the ark. That might be David's high point in his life, dancing before the ark. And it, and it was pretty much not long after that that the downhill trend began. And we discover that David was not a very nice person. We could even say that he was a sinner of sinners. The man after God's own heart, a sinner of sinners thinking even of the words of Paul with regard to himself, the chief of sinners, was David. But I believe that David is not only a type of Jesus Christ, but he's a type of ourselves, is he not? Could we not nickname him every man? He was not very nice. He was a sinner of sinners, and yet he was an eminent type of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to remember as we consider the life of David and try to keep these things in balance and study hard to determine when he is typing out Christ and when he is typing us, and not get them confused. Not say to ourselves, well, David did that, it must be all right, that's many times going to be found to be false. So beware. I want to read from uh, 2 Samuel as we dip back into the actual history of King David in 2 Samuel chapter 15. Just a few verses and beginning at 19, 
verse 19 of chapter 15. Then said the king, now I just remind you that this is the flight that David has begun from Jerusalem because Absalom is raising an army to take the throne away from him and to kill him. So David is fleeing with as many as are willing to come with him, with his entourage, as some writers refer to it. In 19, then said the king to Ittai the Gittite, wherefore goest thou also with us? Return and abide with the king, referring to Absalom. For thou art a foreigner and also an exile. Return to thine own place. Ittai was a Philistine. And writers want to argue about what he's doing with David, but I agree with those that think that he just saw something special in David. And he joined himself to him. Even maybe like Jonathan, their hearts perhaps were knit together. And now Ittai, with his 600 soldiers, is not going to abandon David in his worst hour. And David goes on, Whereas thou camest but yesterday, should I this day make thee go up and down with us, seeing I go whither I may? Return thou and take back thy brethren. Mercy and truth be with thee. And Ittai answered the king and said, As Jehovah liveth and as my lord the king liveth, surely in what place my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, even there also will thy servant be. And David said to Ittai, Go and pass over. And Ittai the Gittite passed over and all his men and all the little ones that were with him. And all the country wept with a loud voice and all the people passed over. The king also himself passed over the brook Kidron. And all the people passed over toward the way of the wilderness. We see here David typing Christ just in this, if not more, and there is more, passing over the Kidron. It's only mentioned by John in his gospel account in chapter 18 in the first verse that Christ passed over the Kidron. It's a little brook. Sometimes it's a torrent. Most of the year it's dry. I think they call them wadis, dry creek beds. But nonetheless, we find David as a type of Christ passing over the Kidron where our Lord was to pass over. But here I want to look briefly at Ittai. Ittai the Gittite. I'm going to call him Ittai the faithful one. Ittai the faithful. And what we see here is the mercy of God toward this adulterer and murderer, David. Nonetheless, God's showing him mercy even in sending, even in causing Ittai to be with him and to be willing to follow him, desirous, insisting in fact. The mercy of God provides David here with faithful friends, often unexpected friends. Do we not know something of that? Have we not experienced that where someone just pops up in our life that we never even knew before or hardly knew and and God has sent them as we discover in our thinking, retrospectively sent them to be a comfort, to be a friend, to be an assistant, to assist us, that is. 
I was thinking of the account of the 10 lepers. You remember that in Luke 17, the 10 lepers. Christ healed them of their leprosy. And only one of those 10 came back to thank him and to praise him. And Luke tells us, and he was a Samaritan. The only one that came back, a Samaritan. Uh, an outcast, if you will. But he's the one that came back. And I couldn't help but reflect upon our graduation from seminary. 18 years ago. Now, it was a Presbyterian seminary, and frankly, I was a Presbyterian then. I'm just confessing. <laughs> but it, at the graduation, we had 10 men graduating together. 10. And afterwards, going downstairs, there were men going around congratulating one another. Nobody, <laughs> nobody came to me. I was a little bit different, even if it was maybe by 30 years from most of them. But one man came up. No, he wasn't a Samaritan. He was a Baptist. <laughs> and threw his arms around. God sends comforters to his people. He sends friends. He sends Ittais, the faithful. He sends them to his people. Men are unfaithful. We are. We fight against it. We fight against remaining sin, but we are yet sinners, and we are yet unfaithful in so many things. But God is absolutely faithful. He is the faithful one. He is infinitely faithful. And powerfully faithful. And he sends comforters. Perhaps you remember how Jeremiah was thrown into a dungeon. Because the, the priests and the, and the leaders. The religious leaders didn't like what he was saying. I oh, don't say that anymore. And they finally talked the king into having him thrown into a pit. But some Ethiopian eunuch came up to the king and said... You shouldn't have done that. Let me pull him out. I don't know what kind of relationship Ebed-Melech may have had with Jeremiah before this. But he saw a wrong done and he went and pleaded with the king to release Jeremiah. And the king said, okay, go ahead. And so he went and dropped down cords and told Jeremiah, put them under your armpits and I'll lift you up. And he lifted Jeremiah up out of the mire. God sent a comforter. God sent someone to succor him, a word that's used in many of our translations. Ebed-Melech succored Jeremiah. We read in Psalm 22 at verse 19, Be not thou far off, O Jehovah. O thou my succor. Haste thee to help me. Now that's David writing that psalm. And he could be even speaking of his own experience when he was crying unto God, help me, succor me. But it also refers, David through the Holy Spirit, referring to our Lord Jesus Christ. 
And we know that many of the words in that 22nd Psalm relate to the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ when he cried out. O thou my succor, haste thee to help me. David could have written this. Well, he did write it. Wrote it of himself and through inspiration wrote it of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I would ask the question, was the angel, you remember in Luke 22, Luke's account of Gethsemane, how the Lord sent an angel to encourage Christ? Perhaps that was the response to that prayer. O haste to succor me, O my Lord. And an angel was sent to encourage our Savior. We read this word in 2 Corinthians 6, 2, when we read, at an acceptable time I hearkened unto thee, and in a day of salvation did I succor thee. And then the writer of Hebrews, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted. He is able to succor them that are tempted. The word simply means to help. He is able to help them that are tempted. He is able to come to their aid. It could be rendered. He is able to relieve them. He is able to assist them. And here we find Ittai. Sent by God, I think it's fair to say, since God rules the hearts of all men. Sent by God to comfort, to encourage, to assist David in his flight. David is in a terrible situation, terrible straits. And I, and I think that that prayer in Jonah that we read, of course, many parts of it are taken from Psalms. And some of them Psalms of David, but they sound just like David crying out. He went down into the depths. Jonah cries out. David is down in the depths right now with his favorite son, pursuing him and seeking his life. He was in a lot of trouble. Probably the worst danger he had ever been in to this point. Sometimes believers are taught erroneously that if you're having any trouble, if you're having afflictions in this life, that it's because of sin. It may well be, as it was with David, that you are being chastened. But you need to search the scriptures. You need to search your own heart. You need to cry unto God. You need to spend time in meditation and prayer and discover if there's some cause, some sinful cause. Because sometimes, like the case of Job, perhaps, someone being tried because God is pleased to try them. And not necessarily because of sin, but it was indeed sin in the case of David. We know that clearly. But nonetheless, we're, we're reminded about these things. And we insist that the believer, as some teach, is not freed from trials, is not freed from tribulations in this life. Whatever, whatever the cause is, whether it be sin or no, the believer in this life is not freed from trials and tribulations. Christ himself 
has told us, has taught us that in this life you shall have tribulation. So don't expect that you're not going to have any trials or tribulations. There are three sources of trouble. This is somewhat paraphrastic, but a well-known expression. There are three sources of trouble, and it can be corroborated from Scripture. The world, the flesh, and the devil. Three sources, the world, the flesh, and the devil. I remember hearing someone being asked, someone asking a believer, a young believer asking another believer, if you could have your choice of getting rid of one of these three, if you, could, if you could ask God and he would do what you ask, if you could ask God, take away one of these three, the world, the flesh, or the devil, which one would it be? And the man that was being questioned didn't hesitate. He said, the flesh. The flesh. And the man was astounded. Being a young Christian, he just assumed, well, you'd want to get rid of the devil, wouldn't you? Well, you'd want to have, have the world set away from you, wouldn't you, if you could choose? No, he said. I've learned that the biggest antagonist that I face is my own flesh. That's the trouble that David found himself in. It was his flesh that brought him to this place. But we have to face the world, the flesh, and the devil. Scripture teaches us that. We are either martyrs or penitents or warriors. And at different times in our experience, we're going to be one or the other, or perhaps even all three at the same time. We may find ourselves like David, a penitent fleeing from his son. We may find ourselves like Paul with our neck on the block, being a martyr for the faith. And we will surely find ourselves being challenged and opposed. Sometimes when we can recognize the source and sometimes when we can't, but the devil goes about as a roaring lion. Scripture tells us, Peter tells us, and we will find ourselves fighting against the evil one. And if we're not fighting against sin, something's wrong. If you're not engaged in any warfare, something's wrong. John Newton wrote these wonderful words that are found in our hymnal. Though troubles assail us and dangers affright, though friends should all fail us and foes all unite, yet one thing secures us, whatever betide, no matter what else happens, one thing secures us. The promise assures us the Lord will provide. The Lord will provide. He is our faithful one. He is our covenant-keeping God. And we know how David surely was reflecting upon God's covenant promises to him. Even as he continued under this chastening hand of his God. In that blessed 51st Psalm of repentance that he wrote, there have, been, there have been those who I think have correctly said that the only thing 
The only thing that is more eminent in the life of David than his faith is his repentance. Under the design of God. You may recall if you've read Pilgrim's Progress, that horrible battle between Christian and Apollyon, Satan, the devil. That terrible battle when Christian was almost bested by the evil one. When his sword fell out of his hand, when he was well nigh to being cast down to the ground. And Apollyon thought he had him for sure. Christian had the shield of faith to protect against the darts of the evil one. He had the sword of the spirit, the word of God, that he employed through God's grace dexterously. The word of God. And we read this little poem that Bunyan wrote that pertains to this suckering nature of friends and folks sent around to be comforters. Bunyan wrote, whilst Christian is among his godly friends, their golden mouths make him sufficient mends for all his griefs. And when they let him go, he's clad with northern steel from top to toe. <coughs> northern steel most certainly is Scottish steel, I would think, from the pen of Bunyan. But be that as it may, he's clad with northern steel. He's clad in faith. He's clad in the word of God. Because there's battle to do. There's battle every day against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We find of those under the altar in Revelation 12, those that were told overcame the evil one because of the blood of the Lamb and only because of the blood of the Lamb, and because of the word of their testimony. And they love not their life, even unto death. The blood of the Lamb speaks, I think, of repentance. It speaks of, of the word being a sword. It speaks of the possibility of death, martyrdom, as Paul experienced. But it's also living death, isn't it? It's dying under sin, is it not? David is here fleeing Jerusalem for his life. And David types Christ in this crossing the brook Kidron, as I said. Yet, how distinct are the issues of sin between David and our Lord Jesus Christ, who was absolutely without sin. No sin found in him. And so here is this type of Christ crossing the Kidron, weeping as he went. We might say that this was David's Gethsemane. He crossed the Kidron. In Gethsemane, Christ peered into the cup of God's wrath that was going to be poured out for his people's sins. David was peering retrospectively over his shoulder, we could say, at the chastening being poured upon him for his sins. We might say that this was David's Gethsemane. There is an incredible difference between the type 
David and the antitype, our Lord Jesus Christ, an infinite difference. David was fleeing Jerusalem for his life. Christ was fleeing, quote unquote, Jerusalem for his death. In other words, he was fleeing to Jerusalem, we might say, for his death, not for his life. Yes, for the life of his people. But they were both crossing the Kidron. They were both following the same pattern. Only one was fleeing out of Jerusalem. The one was fleeing into Jerusalem. One was fleeing for his life. One was fleeing. One was marching for his death. David is being chastened for his terrible sin. Christ is bearing the sins of his own. David is weeping as a penitent. Christ as a vicarious substitute for his people. You see, his determined march. In the Gospels, you see Christ's determined march to Jerusalem. In Matthew 16, we read these words more than once, but in Matthew 16, from that time forth, and it was after that the disciples, through the leadership, if you will, of Peter, when asked, who do you say that I am? They pronounced, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And it was in that context that he was telling them that he must suffer. They didn't really understand, but it was from that time forth. And the way that Luke put it in his gospel in 951, we read, he steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem. He steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem. Steadfastly, resolutely, firmly. It makes us think of Psalm 40 when when the pre-incarnate Christ, we believe, spoke those words through the psalmist, if you will. Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me to do thy will. Oh my God, thy law is within my heart. Thy will is upon my heart and mind. And he went steadfastly in obedience to his father, in obedience to the law, we could say, steadfastly, resolutely, firmly. We even read in, that, in the context of Luke 9, you remember how that the Samaritans would not give him any hospitality. That was when the two disciples wanted to call down fire from heaven and Christ said, you don't know what spirit you are of. And he wouldn't go into that town. But he went through Samaria. That was his design to go through Samaria, but they wouldn't give him any hospitality as he went through. How do we handle difficulties? How do we handle objections? How do we handle things like that? We probably try to skirt around issues, don't we? But not Christ. He was going steadfastly toward Jerusalem. Resolutely, straightway, he would not go around Samaria. Whereas our first inclination is, let's see, how can I get around this problem? How can I skirt this issue? I don't want to face it. Peter said, of course, 
Be sober, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour, whom withstand steadfast in your faith, knowing that the same sufferings are accomplished in your brethren who are in the world. But withstand steadfastly, resolutely, confidently. Don't go around unless it's the word of God that's directing you to go around something. And his disciples were amazed. We read that they were amazed that he had steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem. The writers are all guessing at reasons why they were amazed. But they were probably simply amazed that he was being so steadfast and insistent on going to Jerusalem when they knew that the people there weren't going to give him a good reception. One of those commentators, Lenski, about this passage in Luke, he has said, this does not mean, at least simply, it doesn't mean only or simply that he faced death with brave resolve. Surely he did that. But what Lenski is saying is that, but that he looked toward forward rather to his return to the Father with full comprehension even as he spoke of it at length in the final discourses and in the high priestly prayer of John 17. He was being resolute. He was being steadfast. In that prayer, that upper room discourse as it's called by many began in the 13th chapter when we read having loved his own that were in the world, he loved them unto the end. Having loved his own, yes, it was because he was, his father's, he was obeying his father's commands, but it's also because he loved his own, that he set his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem, that he set his face steadfastly toward Golgotha, that he set his face steadfastly toward the cross. Having loved his own, and we read in the 18th chapter of John, right after we read that he crossed the brook Kidron, that he went forth with his disciples. He went forth where was a garden which he entered. The garden Gethsemane, which he entered. He went forth. Nobody was pushing him. Nobody was shoving him. Nobody had a rope around his neck dragging him. He went forth, having loved his own that were in the world. Most of the commentators believe that in Luke 9.51 and the parallel accounts in the other Gospels, that this is where Christ began the Perean ministry a portion of he, he's leaving Galilee and he's going in to that portion of Israel that's called Perea. And they, they speak of his Perean ministry. And one has said that this represents the close of Jesus' itinerant ministry. His days are numbered, this person said. The clock is ticking. Soon he will be in Jerusalem to face the cross to face the cross, but he set his face steadfastly. 
set his face steadfastly. He could not be turned back. We read in the scriptures, Jesus, therefore, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, and that's one of the keys, knowing all the things that were coming upon him. And again, these words went forth. Steadfastly, we could add again. And the writer to the Hebrews, writing of these things, said, Who, who, speaking of Christ, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He longed for that. He longed to satisfy God's justice for his people. He longed to gain for them forgiveness for their sins and a right relation with God through himself, through his blood. He longed for that, and he also longed to be sitting at the right hand of his father. You remember in Proverbs 8, speaking of wisdom, that personifying Christ in the, in the term wisdom, how that he was before all things with him, and they rejoiced in one another. And I'm suggesting that Christ was longing for that relationship, but he had to accomplish what he came to earth for. And so he set his face steadfastly toward the cross to accomplish all things that had been put into his hands in order to restore his people, those that God had given him from before the foundation of the world, in order to restore them, these sinners, back into a good relationship with his father, again, through his blood, through his satisfaction at Golgotha. The disciples had confessed already, as I said, that he was the Christ. And then there was the climactic, perhaps, we could say self-revelation made at the Mount of Transfiguration, these things. And now, after these things, he's becoming, he's revealing himself more and more. And yes, it's interesting how that he tells them, tells his disciples again and again how that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer. And they don't seem to understand. They don't understand. But now he enters upon the way to Jerusalem. He enters upon the way to the cross. One of his repeated exhortations to his disciples was, come, let us be going. Come, let us be going. I have a baptism to be baptized with. Come, let us be going. William Hendrickson makes a happy comment, I believe, on that passage in Luke when he says, the face of Jesus as revealed in 951 fills us with awe. It amazed his disciples, remember. It fills us with awe. His mind is fully made up. He is determined to go to Jerusalem in order to lay down his life for his own. High resolve to carry out the task which the Father had assigned to him and love for his sheep make his step firm, his face radiant and steadfast. Nothing, not even the refusal of the Samaritans to lodge him can cause him to swerve from his course. To the cross he must go. What sublime, wholehearted devotion. He goes to Jerusalem to lay his life down, that he may take it again. That he may take it again. You remember how that he told us 
through the scriptures. He told his disciples, no one taketh it away from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Let us pray. <coughs> oh, Lord of God, we, we are amazed. And our Father, we, we do stand in awe. We are amazed at the love of Christ. And our Father, we are amazed at what great sinners we are. And amazed that that Christ would set his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem in order to save such as ourselves. But we are happy that we are privileged through new hearts given us because of Christ. We are privileged to thank thee and praise thee through our Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest and the Lamb of God. Help us to ever do so, we ask. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Would you stand, please, for the benediction from Romans 5, 8. But God commendeth his own love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Amen.